Hello and welcome back to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I don't have an interview for you today. Instead, I'm going to share with you some of my original research. Now, I thought about sharing a talk that I had delivered at an academic conference, but I've decided instead actually to use a talk that I gave at the university where I, I work. That's uh, Rowan University in New Jersey. This is a talk that I gave to the parents of students in our history department. This was at a, a banquet honoring some graduating seniors. And I have to say, it was a real privilege. I mean, just a real privilege for me to to be there with some of our best students and it was just really delightful to meet their their parents as well and to, you know, embarrass them a little bit, of course. And I'm doing this instead of publishing an interview because I rather dropped the ball on conducting interviews for this season of Agnes. In previous seasons, I'd done almost all of the interviews over the summer when academics have a little more control over their time and it would be easier to schedule a conversation. But that meant that I was asking scholars to set aside time and to do work for me, you know, for this show, and then not publishing that work, sometimes for 11 months, but even at best, really three or four months. And that seemed unfair. And so this season, I tried to cut that lag time down. But it turns out that the reasons I had for doing the interviews over the summer were, in fact, good reasons in the first place, and I should have stuck with that plan. So today we've got me solo, and then I'm going to put the show on sabbatical for a while until I can get uh, another reservoir of interviews, and then I'll be back with a regular schedule. Now, this doesn't affect any of the other shows we do on the network because that's just us. That's just the hosts who've all agreed to very long delays between doing the work and publishing the work, and most of our shows are recorded at least six months in advance. And for one of them, we even have episodes for 2023 already recorded so no delays there. And while Agnes is on sabbatical, I'd really love it if you checked out some of those other shows if you're not already listening to them. Coming up on Hanging Out with the Dream King, our Neil Gaiman podcast, Brent and I are going to be talking about Chaucer and medieval chimneys, or really the invention of chimneys in the late Middle Ages, as these things appear in the issue of Sandman entitled Men of Good Fortune. And over on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast, Brandon and I are going to be talking about the English Civil War, the British East India Company's conquest of India, and also, and in, in, in really maybe especially of interest to you, a pseudo-history of the 20th century that imagines events both big and small as fantastical or, or supernatural occurrences. And that is an episode that I really enjoyed doing because we had a chance to talk about the, the ethics, about the, the morality of telling a story in which Hitler or Stalin are robots or vampires or something like that, right? A, a story in which the Second World War and all of the accompanying atrocities are subservient to the fact that you've got Red Skull and the Tesseract. I think that's a really important conversation. So I hope you'll check that out. But all right, let's get into this episode so I work on the fall of the Roman Empire, which, as scholarly topics go, has the real virtue of being something that other people have heard of, something that non-scholars have heard of. But a lot has changed about our understanding of the fall of the Roman Empire in, in recent years, and, and really, I should say, recent decades, almost half a century, I suppose. When I was in high school, certainly, the fall of the Roman Empire was presented to me by my teacher, a very good teacher, as a clash of civilizations, as... Uh, uncivilized, uncouth barbarians invading the Roman Empire in order to conquer it, in order to destroy it for reasons we never actually talked about, right? For motives that we never actually talked about, because it turns out that's not actually what's going on. There were no motives. There were no reasons for that. 
But that's not the fault of my high school teacher. This is a story that genuine bona fide scholars, historians have told for centuries. This is how people understood this. Edward Gibbons' famous book, or maybe the book's not famous to you, but the title certainly is. That's the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Here, Gibbon actually even attributed the fall of the Roman Empire to beer, to the barbarian desire to stop drinking beer and to start drinking wine instead, which I guess for Gibbon uh, is better than beer, though I think many of us, including me, would disagree. But the picture that we have now of the fall of the Roman Empire is much more complex than this. Uh, for one thing, we don't think of this as an event or, or even a series of events anymore. But but really now we think of this as a long process, uh, one that took at least a century, in fact. But our picture now is also one in which national identities, for example, have become much less important. And I'll give an example of that later. What we see instead is a period in which factional politics have really broken many of the mechanisms by which the top level of government in the Roman world was supposed to function. And what this amounts to is too many people want to be emperor, and they'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. And that can include things like murder and civil war, but most often really just means caring more about politics than about governing And this can be great if you're an important part of politics in the capital, or if you're a member of the military command, or even if you're just very wealthy. But if you're outside of these powerful circles, then civil wars and and deaf ears can be disastrous. Now, my own work focuses on how the resulting warfare affected people who lived through it. And I want to spend the next 15 minutes or so sharing some stories with you about what these people experienced. And we're going to focus on that by looking at Christian bishops. Christian bishops were important figures in every Roman community, and they were very often members of the upper class. These were people who had left a life in government in order to administer their city's church. But the question that I have, the question my research looks at is, what was their job when their city was besieged or even occupied by an enemy army? What were their duties and their obligations during wartime? So to find out, we're going to look at two examples here today. So I'll begin with a bishop named Augustine, who laid out a carefully considered opinion about what those obligations were. And then I'll look at a bishop who made some choices that I think tend to surprise modern people. Augustine was a bishop in the city of Hippo in modern-day Algeria, and Roman Africa was one of the most urbane, sophisticated, and and wealthy parts of the empire. It also had a great climate, so it was basically the Southern California of the Roman Empire, uh, though I don't know if people were actually surfing yet. Augustine himself is an extraordinarily important figure. He's one of the two intellectual giants of Roman civilization. He wrote about 100 books, and these were not short books either. And these are monuments of philosophy and of Christian theology, and and books really that still shape the way that we think about the world today, even if we've never actually read them, and even if this is the first time you've ever even heard of Augustine. And Augustine managed to write all of these books while still also doing the day-to-day job of being a bishop. And that meant managing the church, doing baptisms and weddings and funerals. It also meant writing hundreds of letters to government officials on behalf of members of his congregation. And of course, it also meant writing lots and lots of sermons, right? One for at least every Sunday, for every holiday, uh, and doing this over a matter of decades. It is an impressive achievement. It's one that doesn't always make me feel very good about my own productivity, I will say. Okay, so that's who Augustine was, but how does he relate to war? 
Well, Augustine died in the year 430 while his city, Hippo, was being besieged by an enemy army. This army, uh, they're the, the Vandals, though that's actually their name. They're not called this because they liked spray painting brick walls or tagging cars or something like that. Uh, the Vandals had already conquered other parts of North Africa, and they had sacked and looted several cities. And they do eventually get Hippo to surrender to them, though that doesn't happen until after Augustine's death. And this matters for us because at the beginning of this war, before this army had reached Hippo, Augustine fielded questions from other African bishops concerning their duties and their comportment in the face of such peril, in the face of this invasion, which is to say that people were afraid of being killed and they looked to Augustine to tell them what to do during this invasion. One of Augustine's answers to this question has survived. This comes to us in a letter to a bishop named Honoratus. And this letter is actually Augustine's second answer to Honoratus, because initially Augustine had told him that bishops should not run away from invading armies just because they're afraid. But this was definitely not the answer Honoratus was looking for. So he wrote to Augustine again, basically saying, okay, but I actually really, really very much want to run away. So are you sure it's not the right thing to do? And this letter that we have, this second letter, provides a detailed explanation of why it's not okay to run away, as well as some other things that priests should be doing during wartime. Augustine begins by explaining that in this present situation, when whole communities are in danger, priests have a special obligation to stay with their flocks. And in his letter, Honoratus had objected to this by wondering what benefit priests would be to their community once they had witnessed the horrors of war. Honoratus thinks that they might lose their moralizing power because of these experiences. And perhaps what he's really getting at here is that he wonders how someone who has gone through war can ever really believe in goodness again. And of course, this is something that modern soldiers experience all the time. As a counter-argument, though, Augustine draws on the typical experience of a city anticipating a natural disaster, anything from floods to famine to disease. And he reminds Honoratus that in these cases, people tend to crowd the churches. People demand baptism, they demand acts of penance, and also the ritual of the sacrament. And Augustine says that the performance of these services is the sacred obligation of priests, right? This is their first duty. Failure to minister to the community will result in what he calls the eternal ruin of those who died without rebirth or absolution. In other words, what he means here is if priests aren't around to serve communion and to do baptisms, then no one can get into heaven, and that's worse than just being dead. And I have to say, this is an especially evocative part of this letter. Augustine asks Honoratus to imagine the agony of a family left incomplete in the afterlife because no one was present to perform a baptism before the arrival of the Vandal army. Here's what he says. He says, Great grief, great bewailing, and the great accumulation of eternal evils are the price the community will pay if priests give in to their own fears. But, you know, no pressure, Honoratus. And it is a lot to ask, and, and Augustine anticipates objections here because people are afraid, Right. Foremost is that if the priests can't run away and if they all died, who's going to be left to perform the sacraments for those members of the community who have managed to survive? And Augustine's response to this is simply to say that that's a problem for the future. On top of this, Augustine worries about priests using that type of thinking as an excuse just to give in to their fear. It's a justification for their, their cowardice. And he also doesn't want priests thinking that they're more important than other types of people, right? That they should be allowed to run away and hide while other people have to suffer. Augustine also expects that someone will say, 
But if we stay, even though it's really dangerous, then other people might think it's safer than it really is and get themselves killed. And Augustine has a pretty great answer to this objection. He points out that priests have big rooms where lots of people can get together and are accustomed to listening to priests talk, right? This is the church, right? Uh, Augustine thinks that talking to people about what's going on, advising them to flee, is a better strategy than just leaving a note on the church door that says, really scared, ran away, you should too, good luck. Now, behind all of this advice is Augustine's concept of an ideal bishop and that bishop's role in the community. For Augustine, pastoral care, that is to say, taking care of your congregation, this is the most important thing that priests do. During a crisis that threatens the existence of whole communities, this is the only duty that matters. And Augustine really envisions priests during wartime as doctors treating patients during a plague. This is a heavy burden, and we know that not every priest during the fall of the Roman Empire was able to bear it. In fact, it may be the case that most of them were not. And while Augustine presents here a fully developed philosophy about the obligations that bishops have during wartime, he did this really just within the scope of the pastoral care of souls. For Augustine, the issue was that priests might abandon their communities. But once a given priest had overcome his fear, the expectation was that he would just go about his normal duties, right? Baptisms, sacraments, and so on. But in other places, in other times, during the very slow, very long collapse of the Roman government, bishops often took on additional responsibilities when warfare came to their cities. They didn't merely act as advisors in important community decisions, but in fact actively organized the defense of the city against an enemy army. And we have lots of stories about bishops like this. And, and these stories can be really quite exciting. I mean, frankly, a lot of these bishops sound like Gandalf trying to muster the defenses of Minas Tirith while Denethor is busy lighting himself on fire. But as exciting as some of these stories are, what I want to do is actually highlight something else. One of the things that we see bishops doing in service of their communities is acting as diplomats. It often falls on them to try to negotiate a peace or to persuade generals away from unleashing the horrors of war in their region. And there are a lot of examples of this, but here on this episode, I just want to focus on the bishop Orientius of Ock. And you can hear the word Orient in his name, by the way. And of course, we use that word for East. Uh, but to a Roman, this would have meant something like Sunrise, but I am not going to call him Bishop Sunrise. We'll just call him Orientius. Orientius was a younger contemporary of Augustine. He was the, the bishop of Auc during the 430s. And Auc, by the way, is a gorgeous little town in southern France that you should definitely visit if you're ever in the area. And we'll get to the war in just a moment, but I want to talk a little bit first about how we know about Orientius, right? What's the evidence that I use to try to understand how bishops acted during the fall of Rome? Uh, when we were talking about Augustine, we had a letter that he himself had written. But for Orientius, though, we don't have anything that he wrote. What we do have is a narrative text. Uh, what we have is a story, right? This is a story about his life and about his work as a bishop. And this kind of text is called a hagiography. And in English, rather than Greek, what that translates to is the life of a saint, a saint's life. And we might think of this as something similar to a biography, but unlike our modern biographies, which are mostly interested in telling stories about how people overcame personal adversity to invent the, the iPhone or something like that, saints' lives are about how a bishop overcame adversity in order to help other people by working miracles. And that's what we're going to get here in the life of Orientius. So, okay, let's talk about war. The early 5th century was politically and militarily disastrous for France. 
Local figures worried intensely about their safety and about the the future of the, the region. And the biography of Orientius captures this anxiety. In the early years of the 5th century, a group of soldiers called Goths had been given part of France to live in, really as a kind of private security firm, while the Roman army was far away dealing with other problems. And this actually worked out just fine for a little while, but then that political factionalism that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk started to cause some problems. And we can imagine here in America the next presidential election. It's too close to call. Both sides are making accusations of voter fraud and Russian interference. And that scenario is certainly not implausible. In fact, I think we're probably expecting that exact scenario. But let's take it a step further. We get to January, and it is still not clear who legally won the election. So five members of the Supreme Court decide to swear in one of the candidates, while the other four swears in the other candidate. And both of these people now claim to be the legitimate president. And although that's certainly going to dominate our social media and get in the way of our ability to watch movie trailers and bicker about Star Trek and so on, that generally is not really going to be an immediate problem for most of us. But imagine if you are a government official, right? Maybe you're a bureaucrat, an FBI agent, or the captain of an aircraft carrier, and you start getting competing orders. Do X or do Y. How do you know whose orders you should follow, right? Which of these people is actually the legitimate president? And this is basically the situation that the Goths and also everyone else in the Roman Empire found themselves in during the 5th century. Sometimes there could be as many as four people claiming to be the emperor, and they were all sending orders to the same officials. And so, as you can imagine, this led to all sorts of civil war. Okay, so now we can come to the part of the story where the bishop Orientius comes into it. In 439, a Roman army came to the city of Toulouse in France, where the Gothic leader resided with most of his own army. This was his his capital. As the Roman forces are preparing to assault Toulouse, the Gothic ruler, this is a a king named Theodoric, uh, Theodoric begs Orientius to approach the Roman general in order to broker a peace. And the general receives Orientius, but he decides not to agree to a peace treaty, Because what he wants to do is capture Toulouse through violence so that he can loot the city, become wealthy, and also reward his soldiers. And at this point, the author provides a really beautiful narrative contrast depicting the general preparing for war while the bishop is praying for peace. I have to say, this would make a great montage sequence if anyone ever wants to make a movie about this. And if you do, I am happy to be your historical consultant. Uh, You can just email me. And in the end here... God answers Orientius' prayer that the people of Toulouse be saved. The Goths win this battle, but it is a miracle, at least according to the writer of this hagiography, this saint's life. And in the aftermath of this battle, Orientius continues to do his duty as a bishop by organizing a, a prisoner exchange so that no free person would have to become a slave. Now, what makes this episode so significant is that it shows us a Catholic bishop who is an ethnic Roman working on behalf of a ruler who is not an ethnic Roman or a ruler who is a barbarian, but who is also a member of a sect of heretical Christians, right? He's a Christian, but he's not a Catholic. And Orientius does this in order to prevent the liberation of Toulouse by this Roman army, by the imperial army. And the writer of our text himself takes note of the significance of Orientius's decision here and even offers an explanation for it. He feels like he has to. And what he says is that Orientius simply weighed the moral scales here and decided that fighting heresy was less important than providing safety for the civilians of Toulouse. And here, I think we can see Augustine's concern about pastoral care, the concern about 
protecting people. On top of all of this, and, and I think very importantly, the villain of this story is not this barbarian heretic, but in fact is this Roman general. Theodoric, right, even though he's a barbarian and a heretic, he values and respects the bishop, even though they have different religious beliefs and different ethnic identities or different nationalities, we might say. Well, on the other hand, the Roman general treats the bishop with nothing but hostility and derision. And it is the Gothic king who seeks peace, while the Roman general just wants to steal from the very Romans he's supposed to be liberating. So the perspective of the writer is clear. Religious and national identities simply do not correspond with morality or with good leadership. Instead, what he thinks is a leader is only as good as his commitment to protect his people. And in the end here, the Roman generals even captured during the fighting. And so we could really even say that he paid the price for preferring violence to peace. And really, we could say that he paid for trying to use the political chaos of the period to enrich himself and to enrich the members of his political faction instead of doing the thing that government is supposed to do, which is protect people, keep them safe, keep them secure, help them have a good life. On the other hand, it's important that we emphasize that the contest for power and these shifting political allegiances are entirely irrelevant for the fulfillment of the bishop's obligations. No matter what, the bishop's moral duty is to work with political figures to protect his community, and it doesn't matter who those figures might be. I want to finish up here by returning to the type of text that we've used in order to learn about Orientius, this holy biography, this saint's life, this hagiography. This text was written 60 or 70 years after the events that are described, which is to say that it was written by the, the grandson of someone who lived through these events. And I've tried here really not to describe the real horror that warfare brought with it, that we get a lot of that in contemporary texts, and, and maybe someday I'll share another talk with you and, and we'll get into some more details about that. But I do want to remind you that although we are talking about events so long ago that they may as well really just be stories to us, these wars were real. They were terrible, visceral threats to the lives of these people. They were terrible, visceral threats to their families, to their communities. People were afraid for their lives during times of war, and even in moments of peace, they feared for the violence of the future. And during this period, people and communities tried many strategies for coping with war and, and the constant threat of war. But one that we see over and over is that people turned to Christian bishops for help. And what we see in texts like the life of Orantius and, and also the, the life of Augustine as well, is that when bishops protected their flocks from these dangers, whether they were doing that in coordination with or whether they were doing it in place of secular authorities, these bishops were remembered as heroes for generations. All right, well, that is going to do it for this episode, but I do hope that you'll visit the Agnes Forum and talk with me about Augustine and Orantius and even about the fall of the Roman Empire more broadly. Or, you know, if you want to talk about Gandalf, I'm always up for that, too. I mean, always up for that. And you can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And that does include all our other shows. And I do hope you'll check some of those out while Agnes is on sabbatical. And until we return, awe wale.